Welcome to The Sober Unicorn. We are a gay-hosted, all-inclusive podcast about sobriety and addiction recovery for the LGBT plus community and all of our allies. I'm your host, Holden, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, 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 it's Holden, and I am an alcoholic. Today, I am being joined by Alex. Hello. Hey, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm so good. It's snowy in Chicago and it's beautiful outside. Having a great day. Good. I, well, I mean, I'm in Texas, so I don't know what snow is all about. Um, so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name's Alex and I'm from a very small town in rural Iowa, um, Northwest Iowa, um, which is part of my story. I, growing up in a rural place, like my town had about 2,500 people in it. Um, I'm from a big family. I'm the oldest of six kids and the first one to go to college in my family. And I went to Iowa State University, studied landscape architecture, and then kind of had this study abroad experience which in Amsterdam, which changed my life. And I decided to go into the arts after that. And ever since then, for the past 10 years, I've been working in the arts or creative fields and I moved to Chicago about three years ago. That's insane. Um studying abroad I feel is very lucky for you to be able to do that I've always wanted to but never got the opportunity um so what is your age sobriety date and your drug of choice yeah so um I'm 34 years old and a Scorpio which is also part of (laughs) maybe we'll pepper in some stuff about that but um I've been sober for almost about three or 630 days approximately. Um, and my sobriety date is May 6th, 2020. Um, so right at kind of the beginning of the pandemic. And my drug of choice was definitely alcohol, particularly like tequila or gin. And um, I never really was a huge beer drinker, but the hard alcohol definitely, yeah. Yeah, gin. I mean, I think you have to be a true alcoholic in order to even stomach gin. I know. I mean, like there was moments, yeah, definitely where it was like, what's the cheapest bottle I can get with the most alcohol in it that doesn't taste like complete garbage. But I even like, you know, toward the end, it was like lowering and lowering and lowering the standard, like my, the shelf, I just kept going lower and lower and lower on the shelf, especially at the end. It was like the, you know, $4 bottles of vodka or something that are just gross. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, uh, that's insane. I, was, I know a friend that did that. She used to actually Brita filter her vodka because make it taste better. I guess that I maybe, yeah, I'm glad I maybe, yeah, I don't think I could have done that, but yeah. Ugh. That's crazy. So I know, um, as you just said, you, you kind of kickstarted your sobriety at the beginning of the pandemic, like kind of, well, kind of before it got chaotic in, in the States. So how did you were you an essential worker during that time? I was, and that is definitely part of the story. I do think we should back up just a tiny bit because um, working in the arts and working in creative fields and being a millennial has a lot to do with drinking. Like there's always an art opening, like, you know, these sort of like caricatures of the art world is like, you go to an art opening and you have a, a glass of wine, but it's rarely one glass of wine, you know? And then, then it turns out that everyone's going out afterward. And then this is all part of the culture of the art world, which is fun and exciting. It's a great way to meet people and engage with people of different classes and like socioeconomic classes. 
Um, and so I, when I moved to Chicago, I worked at Chicago Architecture Biennial, which was so amazing. Like that's how I got here. And that ended on January 30th, which could have been the worst possible time for a job, a contracted job to end. And in the time from like November to January, I'd applied for about 150 jobs. All were no, or they never got back to me because what happened in March. And in that time period, I live, I was like watching my savings account and checking account get pretty close to zero. And I was like, oh, oh no, this is pretty scary. And there was a grocery store that was next to my my um apartment at the time in Chicago. And I was like, okay, I'm just gonna get this temporary job. It's gonna be two weeks. I'm gonna be in, out, it's gonna be fine. I'm just gonna punch in, punch out, just sort of zombie through this two weeks, maybe a month, I'll find something. Like I thought, oh, I have this great CV. I have like all this great work experience. You know, this is gonna be fine. And then on March 11th, I was dating this person at the time and we were, it was kind of coming to the end of our relationship you know, that sort of arc was coming to an end. And I started drinking a lot as like coping, a lot of vodka, just to sleep, like just to go to sleep. And then on March 11th, we were at couples therapy. And that's kind of when we decided that our relationship was that was the end. And on the way home in the Uber home, after we had just broken up, that's when we heard on the radio, the WHO announces that this is a pandemic. And my boyfriend at the time has an autoimmune disorder and so like very like me working at a grocery store in this like chaos of the beginning of covid made it very unsafe for him and so i had to kind of expedite moving out and also in that time i ended up getting covid while i was working at the grocery store and you know like then on march 13th you know everything went on lockdown it was like but i still had to go to work and like it was very chaotic and very scary and i was like that period of like a couple of weeks, my drinking was out of control. And I was also at COVID at the time. And so it was like, my brain was just like turning into mush. I was like, my identity as like an arts person was then wiped away. And I was like, who am I as a person? I'm not dating this person anymore. So I don't have that part of my identity. I'm not in the art world anymore. I don't have that part of my identity. I just got super lost. And and like at the grocery store at that time, you know, it was very, very stressful and very, very traumatic. Nobody knew what was going on. You know, people were buying $800 worth of toilet paper. You know, we all remember those scenes. We all were in those lines watching those people. And what I wasn't prepared for at the grocery store was the level of disrespect, bigotry, annihilation of essential workers. And I was one of those people and I am a cis presenting white man who's educated, like all this level of privilege allowed me to kind of be an observer, but also affected by what was happening to essential workers. I was the head of customer service, which Karen's became, you know, amplified during this part of the pandemic, demanding physical abuse. It was really a lot. And in the beginning of May, my I have a friend and and she's an AA and she was like, Alex, I know you're kind of going through a lot right now. Um, I'm part of this meetup group. She didn't say it was AA, but she was like, I'm part of this group that meets once a week and it's really supportive. It's like LGBT 
everyone's going through stuff. It's super supportive. You might find some community here. And I went on May 6th and that was the, that was the day that I decided to be become not drink anymore. And it was really hard that first night. I remember like on May 5th, I was like, I'm not going to drink before this. Like, I'm going to go to this meeting and say, today is my first day of sobriety. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard to like, not because my life was so out of control. Well, just like a lot of people's, but you know, when it's your life, it feels so personal. I was taking like everything personal and I was like coming home, crying every night, like rage, total rage. And May 5th, like not drinking, like I couldn't sleep that night because I was using vodka and alcohol to like pass out. So I could just like pass out so I could wake up, guzzle an entire pot of coffee to then go into work in this extremely precarious environment. And then just repeat, repeat, repeat. And then May 6th, I would go to this meeting and it was extremely supportive. And just hearing other people talk about their sobriety, but also their addiction to alcohol, it was like, oh my God, like this is what it can be. Like if I'm on this track and maintain this level of alcoholism, like it's going to get bad. And it's like, sometimes for me, it's like hearing the worst extremes was just like this scared straight moment where I was like, okay, I'm never drinking again. But the environment was also really supportive and people listened to my story. And yeah, ever since then, May 6th, that was... um, that's been for me a, a, a day of reckoning. Yeah, I think going into like those rooms and sharing your story, <clears throat> the people there, you kind of finally feel understood because people that aren't in the struggle of addiction, when you try to tell them what you're struggling through, none of them really truly understand because they haven't been through that themselves. So I think going to that room and seeing that other people are just like you but now are having a year, two years or plus and happy about it. Cause I mean, it's, it's so crazy to think that especially 90 days in now and you're over 600 days back in the, when we were day one, we never thought we'd be able to find happiness without drinking. I mean, totally. And I think that's, you know, there are the age group in, in this AA meeting that I was going to, there was young people like 16, 17, 18, but there were also people who were like, 70 80 years old and like to hear the power of like I've been sober for 35 years or something like that it's like wow and then to hear the clarity of their voice like that to me was like that's what I wanted I wanted to be able to like be in the chaos of the pandemic and be able to be clairvoyant and like okay this is going on and I have the sobriety brain where I can I'm not being affected by substances. I can understand. I can cope in a more calm way. I can listen in a better way. I can project value and empathy in a better way. And that was, that to me was also a major part of those meetings was hearing other people. And yeah, it's great to hear like one day, I'm so supportive of anyone wherever they're at on their journey. One day, amazing. Yes, you got it. I'm at 600 and plus other people are 25, 30 years plus. And that was really important to me. And the other thing was just that it was all mostly gay men and I identify as gay. And so seeing other people in the community and like knowing that like 
being gay doesn't have to involve going to brunch and going out on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It can and, and involve being sober. That is so true. I think the community in general is a major drug and alcohol induced community, whether it's brunch, whether it's um, Friday, Saturday night, the drag shows, the uh, like drag brunches. I mean, just kind of everything encompasses drinking. Literally everything. And like, you know, it's, there's always that sort of awkward fumble when you tell someone like, I'm not drinking. I've like, it's like, you know, trying to find the right language too. It's like, when you say you're sober, then people are like, can I drink in front of you? Or like, there's all this sort of like defensiveness. And I'm like, do you, I'm, I'm going to have an amazing tonic water and it's going to taste great with a little lime in it. That's my thing. And other people, you know, do your thing. If you want to be sober, like I've had people come up and talk to me about it afterward. And that's been really great. Or I think one other thing is that I post a lot on Instagram, like every time I have a hundred day sort of like 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, I like post on Instagram about it. And I get a lot of DMs following those responses. Like, how do you do it? How is it? Like, I can't believe you're doing this. It's so exciting. And being there for other people as they're on their journey has been a major part of my journey as well. So going back to being an essential worker, of course, you had just gotten sober while dealing with the Karens, the chaos, the $800 worth of toilet paper buying, which is crazy to me. So what tools did you use during dealing with all that kind of the chaos and the, everything burning down around you to maintain sobriety in the early days? Mm, that's a really good question. And it's funny because like that part of the pandemic, I've really blocked out of my brain. You know, it's like, it was so traumatic, but I think like, I'm one of those people that if I put my brain, if I say, I'm not going to drink anymore, I'm not going to drink anymore. If I say like, whatever it might be, if I'm going to eat healthy, like once I say that I'm going to do it. And then I kind of become addicted to that. And I think I told myself I wasn't going to drink anymore. And it was also like working at the grocery store, this is maybe a little slightly awkward transition, but working at the grocery store and watching millennials who look like me, talk like me, dress like me, act like me, come into the store and buy cases of alcohol every day. And watching them was like, okay, they're spending a lot of money on alcohol. And I took about a $40,000 pay cut in 2020 by working at the grocery store because I was working for minimum wage. And so I also made this little commitment to myself that like, once I started seeing all these millennials buying cases of Truly or cases of whatever, hashtag seltzer water, um, you know, I realized like I spent, a, I wasn't drinking the most expensive alcohol, like, but I was spending you know, a lot of money on alcohol. And I, so I made this little commitment to myself, like, I'm going to save about a hundred dollars a week. Cause that was about how much I was spending rounded up or down. Like that's an average amount. So I saved a hundred dollars a week, which I was making $400 a week as an essential worker. And so a hundred dollars of that, I would put into a savings account and that savings account then grew 
quite a bit over the course of the 14 months that I was at um, the grocery store. And I amassed about $6,000. I also put my, that's where I put the sort of the $1,400 that came from the government. I put that in there and I used that money as kind of the FU money when I left the grocery store. Like I saved up all this money and watching it grow, I was like, okay, I know if I save $6,000, I can have a hot girl summer. I can literally be at the beach every summer or every day during the summer and and relax and be calm. And like just watching that money grow became like my little sobriety ticker as well. Like not only just the clock on my on my phone that was tracking how many days, but also watching that savings account grow. And, you know, no one ever told me like that might be a way to stay sober, but it really helped me in those in those very stressful times, like watching and being proud of like transferring that money every week, like, yeah, transfer a hundred dollars. Or sometimes I'd be like, I'm going to transfer $200 this week. Yeah. I need to learn from you because I'm really bad with money. Even, even now that I'm sober, I, I, I took a pay cut, a $20,000 pay cut to go to my job and I mm-hmm. tallied it up and I was kind of spending between 18 and 22,000 a year on liquor. Cause yeah. I, I was coined a bougie drunk. Cause I, wasn't mm. willing to go to like well vodkas mm. like I had that I was like if I'm gonna drink at least I'm gonna drink right I guess <laughs> no. yeah. but it's insane on how much money that we spend and at least for me I find a way to spend money and now it's more into the service aspect of sobriety with if I see somebody struggling a little bit financially I'll take them grocery shopping or mm. if they can't afford something for their children I'll go and pick something up like toys whatever it may be so that's, I mean, my spent, my money still gets spent in some way or another. Yeah. I mean, this is where sobriety is different for everyone. Right. And mm-hmm. we all have our ways of keeping ourselves sober. Some people it's meetings for me, it's putting that money in that savings account and I still do it. And it's like, it just feels so good to have, like, I, you know, I grew up working poor, like in rural Iowa, never had a savings account, you know, never had a savings any money in savings, even when I was making like 50 plus thousand dollars a year in the art world, I still didn't have any money because I was like you spending so much money on like, you know, you go out after an opening and you buy a bottle of wine and it's $60 or more. And then that's not the only thing you're drinking. And then once I kind of, I'm like a generous drunk. And so I was like, who wants shots? And like, even if I wasn't going to get one, I'm like, who wants to like, I'll buy your drink or whatever. And that adds up as well. Um, so I, I, I like what you said about, you know, taking somebody out and buying groceries instead. Um, but yeah, I'd never had a savings account. So that became this little way for me to make something special for myself that I'd never had before. Mm-hmm. And I think a way to wipe down, especially like you said, you're going to do hot girl summer at the beach, yeah. which gives you kind of a time to decompress especially during the cra- the craziness of the pandemic, getting sober, that allows you to finally just kind of breathe, take a pause and take everything in that you went through yeah. in sobriety and all these Karens being a bitch. So <laughs> I know that um, you were at one time um, California sober. Yeah. So that tell is... me what made you choose California sober and are you still California sober? Yeah. So for people who don't know, California sober is like smoking weed or edibles. And it's been something that I've been 
struggling with back and forth is like, how sober am I going to be? And this, you know, in Chicago and in Illinois, marijuana is legal. So there's like dispensaries everywhere or like you can just smoke it on the street or you're at the beach or whatever. Um, but I, w- I had this great therapist during the pandemic and she was kind of like, like me, she had like a very similar story. We really connected. And she, there, were these, there was this moment where she was like, Alex, you make so many rules that make you miserable. Like you're not drinking, you're not smoking weed, you're not like doing any of this stuff. You've just set up all these no, no, no's. Like what is bringing you joy? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, I said, maybe I will try smoking weed because I really had a really some bad experiences with like some people that I was like, I don't like the people who smoke weed. I like the effects of it. And so for a long time, I was like, I'm never going to be a weed smoker. I'm never going to smoke pot. And then once it became legal here and you could go to the dispensaries, I went there and while I was standing in line, there was like a whole cross section of people there. There was like the grandmas, there was like business people, there was like the hippies, there was like people that looked like me. It was just like this amazing mix of people waiting in line. I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I had worked with this indigenous artist who she uses a lot of marijuana as like quote medicine. And I reflected back on her and I thought, I'm going to just try this. Like maybe this will help me emotionally. And for me, I think I realized how addictive my personality is. And I became really addicted to the feeling of smoking weed and the feeling of coming home after a very stressful day at the grocery store, packing a bowl and like, oh, just like that moment of like, when you breathe out for the first time and like melt into your couch. I got really addicted to that. And recently I got I'm that sort of snowball addictive person too, where it's like, well, if one bowl is good, you know, three is going to be amazing. If one edible is good. And I had this moment where I went out recently, I took three edibles, went to this dance party called Queen, came back the next day and I was like destroyed. Like I was like hungover. Like I forgot what a hangover felt like, but like I was so hungover from the THC in my body And I was like, I need to stop doing this. But a part of me is like going back to that addictive personality. It's like, am I now being addicted to not doing it? So I'm like trying to find that balance of like, maybe I just smoke once a month and it's very intentional. Maybe it's not. I'm like trying to find the right balance that actually makes sense as opposed to like my therapist, like setting up these rules, which makes me miserable. And it's like, could I just smoke one puff and be fine with it or training myself to do that? And so I'm, you know, I'm not not California sober and I'm not California sober. Like I'm trying to find that balance right now in what sobriety means to me. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I agree. I, I know several people that have been California sober and that caused a relapse for them. And I know others that, um, are are California sober to this day and that are almost 10 years in so I think for some people it works and some others don't I mean I I know for the ones that have used it in long-term sobriety being California sober allows them not to depend on medication and narcotics Mm. to deal with some mental health issues yeah and like it was interesting like 
on, I hung out with one of my friends last night and I said, oh, I'm going to be on this podcast. And he said, I was really surprised like a couple of weeks ago, we smoked together and he was like, I was surprised that you were able to go out and not relapse into drinking. I said, oh, I didn't even think about it. Like to me, like the not drinking part has just become, it's ingrained in me. Like it's, it's not something that like, it's a value that I have inside of me. That's like, even when I'm not, even when I'm taking three edibles or something, which I'm not going to do anymore. But like, even at that moment, I was still coherent enough with my values deep inside of myself that I've set up that I was like, I'm not going to drink. And I felt really good to like, see that he saw that in me too. Um, yeah. So do you find that, um, are you still currently, cause I know you said you went to a, a meeting with your friends when on that Mar- or May 6th or whatever it was, do you, are you still working that 12 step program? Um, this is where I am not. And okay. for me, my friend, I see her almost every single day. Um, and for me, it was like this scared straight moment of, um, I heard these horror stories. I'm also like from a family that like my whole family on my dad's side are like alcoholics, drug users. Like one of them is one of my uncles is in prison for it. And one of them died in a car crash from drunk driving and drug use. Like I can feel that inside of me. Like I can feel that addiction level, like extreme addiction level. And for me, it was like, the family anecdotes only went so far. It was hearing other people's stories that was like, oh my God, like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't want to have 10 DUIs. I don't want to run over a family. Like, I don't want to like get behind the wheel or, you know, or have sex with somebody that I don't want to have, or like any of this stuff that happens when I was very, very drunk. Um, And also another thing is like, I follow a lot of sobriety Instagrams and those little like moments, like, like when you posted that Brene Brown um, quote, like Brene Brown is really important to me. Like she's a very, the way that she talks and thinks and is, is so powerful for me. And then to hear like, she's 30, 25 years sober. It's like, that must have something to do with the way that she's able to communicate her research and communicate everything that she does on her podcast and her books. And I've I've like sort of changed who I find inspiring through Instagram or other sobriety um, podcasts or people. Yeah. So I know um, struggling, we first kind of all struggle with something internally. Um, I I don't want to end the podcast on a, on a bad basis, but I know that you said you kind of dealt with an eating disorder as well as like was that in the midst of your sobriety or did that lead up to the addiction well in so we have to go back about 12 years so in 2010 that's when I kind of realized while I was in college realized I was gay and I was dating a woman at the time and in Iowa, like, this is where the context is kind of important. In Iowa, I never really, like, saw a gay person who looked like the gay person that I thought I wanted to be. And so because I didn't see myself represented, I thought, well, maybe I'm not gay. And I'll just put that deep down inside of me. In that same summer, I was working at the dining center at Iowa State, which was 
I love that. That was my college job. It was so fun. But I was working one morning and they had these little plaques that said like pancakes, 590 calories, like this much sugar, this much carbs. And I looked at it and was like, what? A banana or whatever has is bad for you because it has so many calories. And I just became obsessed with looking at how much calories food had. And I became at that moment, like extremely anorexic. I didn't eat for almost two years. Like I would eat one tortilla with peanut butter on it a day. And that's it. I would barely drink water. I would even like, I would, I was donating plasma at the time because I needed to buy a new computer and I would run to the plasma center, which was like two miles away, eat a little tiny piece of candy. So my blood sugar would be up enough that I could donate plasma and then run back. And at the plasma center, they weigh you every time. And I became like obsessed with like, if my weight wasn't going down every single time I gave plasma, I would be furious with myself. And so like that began this like mindset of with anorexia and like having an eating disorder. And part of my sobriety, I've also been like, I went to um, an overeater, like an eating disorder anonymous group. And it was in that group that I began thinking about, like, is my sobriety part of this eating disorder? Like how much of the web of my psychological warfare that's going on in my head, like how much of that, how much of my sobriety is because I want to be sober and like I value what I get out of it. And how much of that is me not wanting to consume the calories of alcohol or like valuing the benefits that my body has from not drinking. And that I I want to like also say like, I don't plan on drinking ever again, but I'm trying to like unlearn this anorexic brain that's inside of me. Like I just ate a huge meal before we, we talked and like, I'm really proud of myself for doing that. And like, so I'm having like these multiple sobrieties and even in Overeaters Anonymous, they call eating, that's part of sobriety as well. Like the sobriety from um, recovering from an eating disorder. And so like all these things are kind of like intermeshed together and I'm trying to like parse out, it's a very complicated process, but like parsing out why I'm doing what I'm doing and like dealing with the eating disorder has allowed the sobriety to be like its own thing or like the alcoholic sobriety being its own thing and not connected to being anorexic. Yeah, which is I think super important because I think the addiction to alcohol is more of an allergy thing because there is actually scientific reasoning behind a craving of liquor well Mm. i mean at least for me i mean i can't speak for anybody but eating disorders um is i think more of a mental thing yeah which which ties to a lot it is definitely and you know it's so much tied to the gay community too and I really feel like sometimes very oppressed by the gay millennial culture. Like not only is it the brunching and the drag shows and like, which are so fun. And I love that part of our community, but it's also like the fitness part. And like, we just call it cutting. We don't call it being anorexic, you know, like you go to the gym and you see these super ripped guys or like on Instagram. And it's like, and I got that body when I, like when I stopped drinking, I lost so much weight. And then I like started working out and like had this new body and I got so much attention. And I was like, the reason why I look like this, I was like screaming this on the inside was like, the reason why I look like this is because I'm anorexic. Like, and that like when people reinforce that 
oh, you look so great. Or like, oh my God, you look so much better. It's like, that just triggers that thing in my brain, which is like, if I look good now, what's five pounds less going to be? Or I want to make them think I look even better next time I'm at the beach. And Mm -hmm. it, it just became so toxic. And the last thing I'll say is like, I recently, one of my friends commented to me that they were having some issues with body dysmorphia. And I said, I I'm here for you. Like I have body dysmorphia as well. I know how intense it is. And I began to realize through their sort of coded description that my body was the one that was causing them to have body dysmorphia. And that was like a real, that was sort of like that going to the AA meeting and sort of hearing the extreme, or it was just like this, like pullback where I had to like realize like my projecting myself, like on social media or in the public sphere, like it can cause other people harm. And I don't want that to happen. I, my whole thing after working at the grocery store, after dealing with sobriety and multiple different sobrieties is every interaction I have, I want to project value and empathy in every situation. And so I'm trying to learn how to do that with all these different levels of sobriety happening at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it seems like mentally you have a whole lot going on between, between everything. And I know the community in general puts a huge huge stigma on needing the perfect body, the perfect abs, um, and, or be the twink. So it's only yeah. like two desired body types instead of twink or muscled out. And I've struggled as well with being obsessed with like the gym. After my first partner and I broke, uh, broke up, I dropped a hundred pounds in like mm. seven months, being in the gym two to three hours a day, seven days a week, eating so healthy that it's like, you kind of you kind of start hating yourself because you're not yeah. progressing as far as you want to go or well then you then you're hating what you're eating and everything because you're just it's, it's the same thing every single day and it's the community has projected this um well i mean it's, community on top of society has projected this expectation yeah. of what we have to look like in order to be deemed attractive yeah and this is like so the antithesis of like who I am as the person like in reality I don't care like I if someone to me I'm more of like on the pansexual side where I really drawn to the people's personalities and like or like how somebody holds themselves or like the way that they're sort of slouched in the corner like the way that they're dressed or like I'm more interested in like that than like okay you have abs like great I have abs too but I know why those abs exist and like Sometimes I wonder, like, are you going to a therapist as much as you're going to a, the gym? Like, just check it in, bro, because just want to make sure you're okay. And yeah, I mean, I look back on some of the photos from last summer and the summer before, and it's like, I w- I hated myself, like my body, I hated it so much. And I look back on it, it's like, oh my God, like, I was ripped, I was shredded. Like, n- so, and now I'm like, realizing I just told somebody at the gym this yesterday, like I'm now like challenging myself to think of myself as like, what if I lived in this sort of a thicker body? And like, I've gotten like a way different level of like people coming to me or like complimenting my body. It's like, I don't have like a defined six pack anymore, but I've got like, I'm thicker and I, and I feel healthier and I look healthier. And like, my brain is actually working because it has blood sugar. And like, I do think like for me, all of this stuff is like intermingled with the alcohol sobriety and 
Yeah, it's it's very complicated existing right now for everyone. No, 100%. I think sobriety has a ton of roller coasters. And when we get to what's considered a pink cloud or just like pure happiness and being sober, we try to hold on to that as long as possible, but it doesn't last forever. Yeah. Um, But we just know that even though it's a roller coaster of up and downs, it's at a steady incline as well of going up. So the lows become less low and the highs become higher. Yeah. And I think one, I want to end on some positive stuff too. Like one really amazing thing is like, I've lost some friends from not drinking, which I'm sure a lot of people can commiserate with me on that, but I've also gained a whole new set of friends and gained people that were sort of on the periphery of me a lot in my life that like, I didn't realize they were so supportive of me, but like I had this group of straight friends that I hang out with every once in a while. I'm like on a text message chain with them, which is so exciting to hear what a different world talks about. But um, once I told them once, I said, I'm not drinking because we go to like these soccer matches all the time. And once I told them once, they respected that like so much. And they're like, then sometimes like if they're going to do a shot, they'll be like, do you want to get like a, I don't know, something else to do a shot with us? And I'm like, I feel like I really appreciate that. Or like some of my other friends that maybe we'll go and do something else or if they do want to drink, I'm like, whatever, that's cool. And, or they might drink less when they're with me. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I think the support comes from like the most unexpected places and the people that you expected to be your biggest supporter are the ones that aren't because you were their drinking buddy and they're losing their drinking buddy. And through my sobriety, I've lost, I'm the same as you, I've lost a ton of friends, but the, the friendships I'm gaining while maintaining is they're more genuine friendships because all mm-hmm. they want to see is you be happy and do well in life. And even if I slipped up, they're still going to be there. But all mm-hmm. the friends that I was like, Oh my God, we're such good friends. Am I drinking? And the moment I stopped, they're just like, Oh, well, if you don't drink, why am I even going to hang out with you anymore? Yeah, that happened. That, that exact experience has happened to me where I was like enfolded in a group. And then when they realized I didn't drink, then I kind of got kicked out of the group. I was like a DD for them. And I was like, this is not a reciprocal friendship. Like, but you know, there are these other elements. If you do go out, like I went out to Boys Town last night and when dancing, it was so fun. My bar tab was $4. You know, I had two tonic waters and one of them was free from the bartender. Well, that is super nice of him. Yeah, right. And it's like, okay, you know, there's these little things that like, I appreciate from being sober and going out and I went out on Thursday as well with this artist who was visiting and he, he kept asking me like, how are you having so much fun not drinking? I said, I don't know, but I am. And like, he had had so much and that's fine. He's whatever, but I was having a blast and all I had was one tonic water and it was so much fun. Like I was just like dancing, like, it was just so much fun. And I just want people to like have hope that like, you don't have to like excommunicate yourself from the gay community. Some people need to, I do have some friends who needed to take years off and then could reemerge. That's great. Um, for me, I didn't. And I just needed to like readjust how I existed in that world or the other thing, maybe the last thing I'll say is that like, I had to like really could convert myself from being an introverted extrovert to just being an extrovert 
like when I go out now, I'm just like, when I'm, when you're the sober one and everyone else is drunk or on drugs, you get to like, you're existing in a different world than they are. And you're in sort of your own high or your own state. And I just, once I realized that I'm like, okay, this is fun. I'm just going to remember everything and you're not. Exactly. We actually get to wake up early the next morning if we need to and yeah. handle our business. So um, if anybody needs to get a hold of you, um, how, how can they do that? Yeah, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Um, I think Instagram is probably the best way. My handle is CrossFit Curator. And I love to hear other people's stories and talk to other people and always happy to talk with anybody who wants to talk to me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. Hit that follow button to be notified about new episodes every week. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at The Sober Unicorn Podcast or on our website at thesoberunicornpodcast.com. There you will find our episodes as well as our very own Sober Owned Shop featuring products from small businesses that are sober owned. And remember everyone, don't be normal, be a unicorn, but better yet, be a sober unicorn. Sober Unicorn.